following podcast contains spoilers and rude words. We watch it be. We watch it be. Hello everybody out there in podcast land and welcome back to We Watched a Thing. Uh, this week, I was meant to be joined by the wonderful Daniel Hendo Henderson from the Movie Journey podcast, but sadly, we've just got some news that the boys have had to put their show on hold. We wish them all the best, and uh, hopefully, we can kind of move out of lockdown soon, and Hendo will join me for an episode on Chasing Amy in the next couple of weeks. But in the meantime, I put the call out, you know, who who can chat about this excellent film with me? And I was joined by the wonderful DT from the Space Castle podcast. How you doing, mate? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. We're all three of us are really big fans, so this is rad. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome to be joined by you. Uh, this week, we are going to talk about The Green Knight, which is a 2021 American medieval fantasy film directed, written, and edited, and produced by David Lowry. It stars Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, Sean Harris, and Ralph Ineson. And I'm going to do this to you, DT. What is it about, mate? Uh, in a nutshell, I'm going to say it's about... Uh, becoming a chivalrous, honorable man and accepting your responsibilities and doing it dutifully and with honor. Yeah, nice. I like that. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's get right into it then. This has to be one of the uh, most highly anticipated indie films of the last couple of years. Obviously, it was supposed to come out last year and then was delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been hanging out for this one? Uh, I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Yeah, it was supposed to debut in South by Southwest in Utah in 2020. But like you said, COVID delayed it, which was actually fortuitous because it gave David Lowry uh, an extra six months to rework the film. He wasn't entirely happy with it. So we ended up getting like a proper director's cut as the theatrical release, which is rare, but also really awesome. Yeah, I know. It's it's awesome. In some ways, I'm very curious to see what this film would have been a year ago and how much reworking it it really had i'm always ama- honestly it's amazing how much reworking can happen post-production mm-hmm. i think in oh, a lot yeah. of people's head you know once a film is shot that's it you know you've captured it how much can you really do but it's amazing how much editing can change a film yeah i mean they say that you write a movie three times you write the screenplay then you actually shoot it and then you you rewrite it again once you edit it so it's it's unique and interesting that one man did all three so it's yeah. very it's very intimate and very much a part of him which is which is really cool yeah. And, you know, he's not that old. It makes me so jealous when you see a filmmaker like <laughs> David Lowry making a film so incredible like this who, you know, he's he's not that old, really. <laughs> no, I mean, I went to film school. So, I, I yeah, <laughs> everything you're yeah. feeling is probably compounded, like, for me, like, 10 times over. Like, yeah. Could have been me. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I think you then are the perfect person to talk about this film because, to me, this is very much a film for- film lovers and lovers of the craft of of filmmaking yeah um because this is it's a very beautiful film and i think it was marketed completely wrong i am not a watcher of trailers for the last like six years i've had a vow to not watch trailers online i only see trailers that i see in the cinema um but because i was going to watch this with my wife and she knew nothing about it she was like well can we watch a trailer for it it looks like an action film. Like, it just doesn't really sell the vibe of the film at all. Yeah, Do you feel they, the same way? They really sold it as being like a like an Arthurian epic, like an adventure film. And it kind of is, but it's more, like, contemplative. And mm. it, it's much more of a, a character study than anything else. It's very slow, and it ponders, and it takes its time, and it's it's methodical. And it's not that action movie that everybody thought it was going to be. And unfortunately, it hasn't really, it hasn't, 
done the film any favors. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you look at the the critic score versus like the like the viewer score on Rotten Tomatoes, for example, and it's it's very very polarized. And it's really unfortunate because it was just kind of like a bait and switch, unfortunately. And I think I think audiences over time will learn to like grow to enjoy and appreciate the movie. But I think right now there's like a little bit of resentment because they were kind of kind of fooled in a way, unfortunately. Yeah, it's true. I never really understand that. I mean, marketing is a side of film that I've never really gotten into. I don't understand. Like, I understand the the basic idea. Okay, let's sell this as a big action movie that's going to sell tickets, going to get people in the seats. But there's something to be said for really selling the the truth of a film, because otherwise you really are just going to disappoint audiences and get the wrong people in there to see it. <laughs> yeah. You remember The Grey with Liam Neeson? Yeah, yeah. Where, like, the whole trailer was, like, him, like, getting ready to, like, punch a bunch of wolves with, like, broken glass strapped to his yeah. hand and whatnot. Yeah. And then everybody went and actually saw the movie, and it was just, again, like, a really slow, contemplative, like, introspective character study. Like a like a, like a a mental drama. It wasn't that film at all, and people were super angry. Like, in my screening opening weekend, people were, like, throwing things at the screen and, like, screaming oh, wow. and yelling. It was... Well, I mean, that's how we Americans do, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was... It was rough. Like, yeah, like... Misdirection in advertising hurts a lot of films, unfortunately. All right, so let's start on the screenplay of the film then. As you said, it's it's really a very slow-moving character piece, and I think yeah. there's so much going on thematically. As you said, there's a, there's a lot about, you know, what is it to be chivalrous and what makes somebody good, to me, is really the, the point of the film. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, we we open up with, with Sir Garwin. He's not quite Sir yet. He's working on it, but he wakes up on Christmas morning in a brothel. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he's very much like that carefree sort of playboy who has aspirations of being a knight because his uncle is King Arthur, you know, the king of legends. And he's people are asking him, like, are you a knight yet? And he's like, I, I got time. I got time. Don't worry about it. Like, I'm just having fun. Like, relax. It's cool. He goes out to uh, join the rest of like his family and whatnot for this big celebra- like celebration at the round table on Christmas day. And his uncle in like kind of uh, an unexpected turn invites him to come sit next to him. On a side note, I thought it was really cool to never actually call Merlin or Arthur by name in the movie. Yes. I don't know why. I just really, that tickles my fancy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he's called up and uh, Arthur wants to speak to him because they're related. And uh, Sir Garwin realizes he has no tales of his own to tell. He Like he wants to be a knight, but he's got no tales. And it's that point where Garwin realizes like he's on the verge of being a knight, but he's never really taken those steps to be a knight. He's probably like idolized all these virtuous and heroic and chivalrous men, but he's never done anything to achieve that status himself. Yeah. And he's kind of at a loss. Like he's sitting there next to Arthur and he's like, I haven't done anything with my life yet. <laughs> like I've just been like drinking a lot and like visiting the brothel every night, like even Christmas yeah. Eve. So yeah. yeah, it's it's so there's something so relatable about that. I mean, even as I was saying at the start, the kind of the, the jealousy I feel towards David Lowry actually going out there and making a film, the kind of film that I've always dreamed of making. Mm-hmm. And here I am instead just talking about his greatness. Like there's something so relatable. And that's what I really love about the film is that Sir Garwin, as you said, not a sir yet. He's he's kind of the everyman. He's not a terrible guy. He's not overly chivalrous and and worthy of being a knight yet, but he's also not a terrible person. He's just a person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he's flawed. He's a young guy, probably in like his mid to late 20s, and he's doing what most guys in the mid to late 20s are. I mean, you imagine yourself <laughs> yeah. at like college age, you're at the point where you have to decide how and when you're going to become a man and how you're going to achieve that. And then you're thrown into like amazing circumstances to try and achieve that. And it's it's overwhelming. It's crazy. Like, 
it's yeah. very much like a coming of age story. So yeah, yeah, definitely interesting choice and a choice I really like as well to actually um, not bring the title of the film up at the front. I really like the use of you know Sagawan and yeah, and we get kind of the chapter entries until the finale of the Green Knight. Very interesting way to structure it, I think. Yeah, it kind of like bookends it, like a classic, yeah. almost like novel. Yeah. And what I thought was really cool is when it like announces it, it's like the title card, the Sir Garwin and, Sir Garwin and, and, and. It's all written in different fonts and typographies and whatnot, because the story has been told over and over and over through the centuries, so many different ways. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really, really clever, really creative way of like establishing like, this is a really classic, really old tale that's been told over and over again. It is definitely. And I mean, just the filmmaking itself really holds true to that as well, where this feels like a fresh take and yet it feels so classic at the same time. Like there's so many elements here of a classic medieval tale. And yet in so many ways, it's a very modern telling of it. Yeah. What's really cool is the fact that there's a mix of of modern and classic filmmaking on display too. Mm. Uh, David Lowry actually did one of those recent videos with Vanity Fair where they have the director with the screen kind of break down a scene that they shot. And it was the scene where uh, the Green Knight actually approaches, makes his grand entrance. Yeah. And one thing I didn't catch on the initial viewing in theaters was the fact that it was a partial set and they actually filled in big parts of the round table set with a matte painting. Yep. And even some of the extras were in, like the actual like actors were like included as part of that matte painting. I was like, holy crap. It's like <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Like we're like, yeah, had, like five stormtroopers and like 5,000 painted onto a plate. Like. Yeah. Super cool. Like it was no reason to do that, but it was just, he could, and it matched the tone and the vision of what he wanted to produce and pay homage to like the filmmakers that came before him. Just yeah. super cool. Like if you can do it, why not? Super cool. It is. He seems like a very down to earth dude. He did a, uh, ask me anything on Reddit a couple of weeks ago. And the amount of times where people would ask him about, you know, thematic things in the film, or, oh, you know, did you do this on purpose? And he was like, oh no, that's, that's kind of just a happy accident. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. It actually takes <laughs> a very real person to admit to that and to not get all snooty and say, oh yes, well that was, that was purposeful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when it's a happy accident, like obviously this was kind of a smaller production, low budget, I'm sure they had a whole bunch of really happy accidents that just worked. So, yeah, uh, I, I think it's like it's a hallmark of a really good filmmaker who can recognize those types of things and incorporate them seamlessly into the movie. Like, except that making a film and being on a film set is a controlled process. But there's so many variables you can't control. And sometimes you got to just absorb that and just use them, make them tools. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I adored the cinematography of this ah, yeah. film. Yeah. Like you were just mentioning the map paintings, which were beautiful. And as you say, like seamless, completely seamless. And there are plenty of shots here that, that have definitely had digital alteration. Even you think of the, the brilliant shot when they're heading to Christmas, when Sagawan is going to talk to Arthur and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the camera tracks up to point upwards at the castle as it goes in through the gate and then enters inside the big room there. And it's just such a beautiful establishing shot. And you get so much in this one smooth movement. Yeah. No, the cinematography is just, it's unmatched. It's its just gorgeous. Like every move of the camera is very precise and, and direct. And they know exactly what they want to convey with the movement and with the framing of each shot. It's like every shot in this movie is like a beautiful painting. It's It's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Like that's the, you know, I've spoken about it before where there there can be films that look really nice, but don't necessarily serve the story. And what mm-hmm. I love about this is that it absolutely does both, you know, like a lot of the scene is him very quietly kind of, you know, meandering on his way to the Green Chapel. 
And there's all these beautiful wide shots. And yes, part of that is to let you take in how gorgeous the landscape is and just how fucking good the shot looks. Yeah. (laughs) But it also just serves the story so well of, you know, his kind of lonely journey, not only physically, but mentally as well. You know, his kind of struggle with who am I and am I worthy of this? Right. And also the fear of what he might face when he reaches the Green Chapel. Yeah. Yeah. So you get Sir Garwin. And like we said before, he was invited to, to you know partake in a Christmas ceremony at the round table where Arthur and Merlin and and in the background, um, which is interesting to me, was uh, Garwin's mother, who is uh, Morgan Le Fay. Yeah. In this, um, Morgan Le Fay is actually a, a prominent figure in you know the 14th century tone poem. Um, David Lowry made the choice to make her Garwin's mother. Yeah. So that her summoning the Green Knight, instead of just being a general test for all the knights at a round table to like kind of test their mettle and their virtue, is actually designed as a, a trial specifically for Garwin to become a man. And she very much wants him, and it's it's very subtly, almost visually explained that she wants him to um to inherit the throne of Arthur because that's his uncle. Yep. He's it makes him for it makes sense for him to, you know, succeed Arthur. But he can't do so until he becomes a virtuous knight and becomes worthy of that title. So she summons the Green Knight. The Green Knight appears during the Christmas ceremony at the round table and issues a challenge to anybody who's who's brave enough and willing to accept it. Yeah. And that challenge is to meet him in combat and to exchange blows. Whoever shall challenge him will, will deal a blow to the Green Knight. And one year henceforth, the Green Knight will invite him to the Green Chapel where he resides. And that exact same blow will be dealt to him. Yeah. And it's very, very plainly and, and clearly illustrated as being a game. Like it's it's a friendly contest. It's a friendly yes. challenge. And I love the reiteration of that. Even right before he goes, and Arthur reminds me, he says, you know, remember going, it it's just a game. Like Yeah. 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 And yeah, it's it's all alluded to. Like as soon as the Green Knight enters in, like Arthur looks over to Merlin and Merlin kinda it's this really cool thing where he becomes backlit and the and the front lighting kind of fades away where you see Merlin like subtly doing some magic to like see what the intentions of the green knight are and merlin's like he's he's not hostile yeah so they allow him to come in he issues the challenge and garwin who is at this point in his life where he has no tales to tell decides i'm gonna do it i'm just gonna jump over this table i'm gonna challenge this guy yeah and arthur's like this is a game like don't be a <laughs> fool yeah like remember this is a game like just just go along with it and don't don't be don't be stupid yeah Gawain's stupid. stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's, he's overly zealous. He wants that story that he doesn't have yet. So he just goes full bore and he decapitates him. Yeah. Which what, and- he, what he should have done really is to to match the Green Knight to drop his sword and, and bow down next to him as the Green Knight does, you know, rather than attack an unarmed man, not just attack, but decapitate. <laughs> right. But that's or, what stupid boys do. We try to impress people. <laughs> exactly. We all want to be heroes. Yeah. He could yeah. have just taken Excalibur, which he was lent by Arthur, and just tapped him on the shoulder or just yeah. you know, nudged him in the chest or something, and, and that would have been it. But he had to be a hero because he wants to be a knight so badly. And uh, the Green Knight picks up his, his own head, and uh, he's yeah. like, yeah, I'll see you in a year. And he takes off with his own head, jumps back right on his moment. horse. Takes off laughing at him. <laughs> I love that shot of the Green Knight, like like riding out through Camelot, holding yeah. his uh, his head out, just laughing hysterically. Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's so awesome. Brilliant. Yeah. Are, are you a are you a, a fan? Are you very familiar with a lot of the Arthurian legends? Like here and there, I'm not as well versed in it as I should be. Honestly, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, I got a close friend of mine who actually saw the movie with the first time, uh, Seth. Not the Seth from Space Castle, a different Seth. But uh, he was an English major. He's very intimately familiar with the tone poem. So he was really good about me letting like letting me like guess on some stuff <laughs> and kind of formulate my own thoughts before kind of filling me in and like like yeah. filling in the blanks where they weren't there. But but no, I'm not as well versed as I should be. But I don't think you necessarily need to be to enjoy this movie. No, I, is, I agree. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit the same. I'm I'd say I'm a casual fan. Like there's a lot about the the legends that I love, and I've seen lots of different adaptations that I enjoy yeah. a lot. But yeah, I'm, I mean, there's so much mythology at this point. To be an expert on it would take years. <laughs> You'd have to like just major in just Arthurian legend at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the rest of the film is is Garwin. Like uh, he spends the next year going back to the brothel, drinking more ale, like reveling in his newfound fame. Yeah, and it eventually time catches up with him, and he realizes that oh crap, I gotta go and probably get decapitated by this dude. Yeah, so and I love that about yeah. the film too that it, it skips over a lot of that. Like the next chapter after a Christmas game, we literally cut to, I believe the next chapter is called Sagawan and, and a Year Too Fast. Yeah, and which is brilliant. We, yeah, we cut almost straight to Christmas because you know. He he pro- he's young and stupid. He probably hasn't even thought about this until next Christmas right. when he's like, "Oh shit, yeah, I have to do that." <laughs> it's it's just genius to skip and like obviously that serves from a narrative perspective as well because I'm sure that a lot of the stuff that happened there isn't interesting, but that's kind of the point. It's just a very smart cut there. Yeah, and it's not supposed to be interesting like you said. That's that's really astute. It's the fact that Garwin got his story and he's been living it up and and enjoying having that story. And still not doing anything to become virtuous and become worthy of being a knight. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like he, yeah. (laughs) He's a dumb kid. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. And the whole question of what is it that makes a knight? Because to him, decapitating a guy was it. You know, that was, you know, this is me showing off my medal. I'm going to take this and I'm going to cut this guy's head off and that will show that I'm brave and strong. And it's like, you know, a lot of the time what it takes to really be you know, not just a knight, but like a good person in general is to to know when to hold back as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. To be clever and careful and not, you know, headstrong and charge into every situation with a sword drawn. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Especially when you know that you've got to face it yourself in a year. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's talk cast for a second then. Um, oh, yeah. I'm a big Dev Patel fan and I think he's done some wonderful things over the year. This is a very interesting role for him and I think he plays it excellently. I don't think there's a bad performance in the film though. I think Alicia Vikander in her small role is wonderful. Um, Joel Edgerton, fantastic. Really strong cast. Yeah, no, it's it's beautifully cast. Um, yeah, uh, the standout for me honestly was Sean Harris as Arthur. Like he plays yeah, Arthur yeah. Is, is this regal and powerful figure but also we know immediately he's sickly and he's dying. He's not mm. quite elderly. I mean, I guess he's probably elderly for for that time frame. But he plays Arthur with such a like a panache, but also a frailty that is just beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Um, Even like the the timbre of his voice when he speaks is such that it's it's quite it's raspy. He speaks slow and measured, which you would expect from a king. But you're right. There's something there that lets you know that he's he's towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um. David Lowry talks about how when Arthur gives his his Christmas uh, evening speech to everybody who's gathered at the round table, uh, the screenplay originally called for him to just stand up and deliver it, like just stationary. And Sean Harris was like, well, I'm I'm Arthur. I should be like engaging with everybody and walking around this room. And yeah. David Lowry just let him do what he wanted to do. And it just turned out beautifully. Like you get 
everything that Arthur is all in that one scene. And it's it's stunning. Yeah. It's a fantastic performance. Yeah, great. I mean, great set design in that whole scene as well. Like, you know, the oh, yeah. the use of the round crown shape, which kind of mirrors the round table, the, the mm-hmm. round table itself with that huge empty hole in the middle, you know, for him to walk around and, and greet everybody, which is obviously part of the legend, which is usually missed. When you see adaptations, it usually is just a, a round table. But right, I think yeah. just the entire look of that entire set piece, which is realistically quite a, a small part of the film, really, mm-hmm. it's, it's only utilized in that first piece and then a little bit at the end, but it's so well put together. Yeah, and I love the skylight casting like pretty much the mm. only like main focusing light down from the ceiling because it just kind of halos the entire scene and it really almost acts as like a like a stage spotlight for yes. uh for for Garwin and the Green Knight when they actually have their their sort of ceremony, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, everything like we said before, everything in moving is is just beautifully staged and planned ahead and it's in and of itself, it's almost like a visual tone poem to like complement like yeah. the original like text tone poem. It's it's awesome. And then a lot of the film is is Dev Patel carries the film really on his on his shoulders. Absolutely, absolutely. Like there's there's a lot of just him. Um, it's amazing how much emotion he's able to get in scenes where he's not even conversing with anyone. You know, like there's quite a large chunk of the film where the fox is his companion. Uh, which is this CGI fox, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, done beautifully. Like, it it looks very good for what it is, but it's just him and a fox kind of kicking around the forest. And he does such a good job of conveying the fear of what he's about to face and kind of the unsureness about the future. He's just yeah. fantastic in this role. Yeah, if he's not in contention for Oscars in Golden Globes, like, there's just no justice. Like, the-, the- the dude is just masterful in this. It's, yeah, it is a, it is a like, it's a, it's a watermark, like a, like a hallmark performance for his career. It's oh, definitely. And I do, I worry that you know, odds are this is too much of a genre film, and that this won't get any nominations. Is my fear because it's not, it's not broad enough, I guess, really for the award season. You'd hope that it might pick up a few, but I yeah. don't know. They've been better in more recent years. Nomadland won. Last year, which was a fantastic film. True. Ho- yeah. Hopefully, we're on a better path now. So, I guess we'll see. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think it could be nominated for adapted screenplay since it's based on that 14th century tone poem? I mean, yeah, I, I reckon that that would be that'd be the one category that I would lock it for. I think. Yeah. At this okay. point. Perfect. And I yeah. guess we'll see, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming up. Spencer, which is supposed to be very good. I'd be curious whether that goes for original screenplay or adapted, given it's about princess mm. die i guess it comes down to whether it's based on articles or i don't know so yeah i would hope that this would get up for screenplay because it's masterfully written it's stunning it's beautiful uh getting back to the cast yeah um alicia vikander she's amazing she's so freaking charismatic and wonderful and everything she is yeah. uh, i really first noticed her in ex machina which is another studio oh. a24 movie like they're, they have a perfect track record. It's insane. Yeah, they really do. I don't back. think yeah. I don't think I've seen a bad A twenty four film yet. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, Ralph Ineson as the Green Knight himself is just fantastic. Yeah, he, he plays the role with such. There's such a, a balance between this this figure being terrifying and scary, and also somehow warm. Like even yeah. in, in his initial confrontation with with Sir Garwin, like there's a weird warmness. Like everybody can see it, but Garwin, which is really funny, and, and you know the impetus of the film. But yeah. Ralph Ineson is, is excellent as a Green Knight. He, and just incredible makeup and costuming work. Like, he's oh, so yeah. physical, you know? Like, given given what the Green Knight is, he's almost this kind of tree-like, you know, giant 
barky figure. Mm-hmm. They could have so easily just gone CG there. But the fact that you get his facial expressions and his real body movement adds so much to the performance. He yeah. is so great in this role. And as you say, he is he's kind of scary in his impost, but he's not you don't believe that he's there to harm anybody. I mean, he literally yeah. just hangs out waiting in his chapel for a year. <laughs> like he's just kind of, <laughs> you know, chilling amongst the trees and the flowers waiting for well- this guy to turn up. <laughs> Kind of. I've got a theory that it's not entirely true, but but yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I, I mean, if we want to jump further along in the plot, we can get to Joel Edgerton and Alicia Vikander in her, her sort of second role in the film. Right. Yeah, well, let's do that. And again, she is so great in the in both of those roles. And, yeah. you know, like she's Alicia Vikander. She's very recognizable. And yet, it took me quite a while to realize that it was actually the same, you know, that she played both parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, like the dichotomy between Essel, like the the common girl that um, Sir Garwin's kind of shacking up with versus yeah. the lady who is, you know, Joel Edgerton's character's wife. They both live in this huge manor out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, she plays both roles so differently and so deftly that, like you said, it's it's like two different people. Yeah. She's an incredible actress. Yeah. Okay, so he, he eventually comes across the castle mm-hmm. um, and he- is kind of welcomed in very nicely by this by this lord and lady who who want to play games with him and and keep him there and <laughs> yeah. so so what's your theory Okay I think that the lord is the green knight Interesting Yeah okay. and there's there's some evidence in the uh, the original tone poem towards that as well Um I think it's very much the green knight giving him a test of virtue and seeing what he's all about Um when when Garwin first leaves Camelot, his mother gives him a sash that's supposed to protect him from all physical harm. Yep. He cannot be struck down. He can't be killed. And he loses that. He gets stolen by bandits. And when he arrives at the Lord and the Lady's Manor, um, the Lord says, you know, let's let's have a game, you and I. Like, whatever you shall gain in this manor, mm-hmm. I'll trade it for whatever I happen to ha- you know find in my hunt, which I'm about to go on. And the Lady is toying with him, teasing yeah. him, like flirting with him big time, like leading him on. And she approaches him with an identical sash. Mm-hmm. How would she know how to make that exact same sash and whatnot? I think it all very much comes from the Green Knight. It's an illusion by the Green Knight. Yeah. And um, obviously, Garwin accepts the sash. And it kind of shows the weakness in his virtue and sort of kind of shows his cowardice. Yeah. And it, it leads to kind of like this really odd moment in the film, kind of uncomfortable moment where he's embarrassed and he splits and he leaves. And before he can escape the grounds, the Lord stops him and is like, like, did you find anything in the castle? Were you gifted anything in the castle? Let us yeah. complete our game and and make this trade because the Green Knight's all about his games. And um, Garwin says, "No, I didn't. I didn't find anything." Yeah, no, I, I, nope, sorry. And the Lord is like, "Well, I mean, here's what I found on my hunt, and it's the fox, the with the fox that's been his companion, which uh, is alluded to being like an extension of Garwin himself." Yeah. So I think it was the Green Knight offering Garwin a chance to save his virtue and and kind of test his mettle and prove himself worthy, and in return he would have been given his full self. Yeah, that's. So, I mean, that's a really interesting. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call that more than a theory. Like that definitely sounds like it, <laughs> it tracks. I mean, yeah, you're yeah. even just like the link between you know the playing of a game, um, which is how we're introduced to the Green Knight, and then how we're introduced you know, to, to the Lord as well. It definitely, 
definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and there's a third person in the manor. It's it's an elderly blindfolded woman who yeah. resembles Garwin's mother, who was blindfolded when she was doing the spell to summon the Green Knight in the first place. Yeah, the Lord and the Lady never acknowledge her presence at all. Mm. There's even that really weird, intense exchange between the Lady and Garwin, where he's given the sash, and he looks over, and she's like standing right there, and like nobody like acknowledges her. I think that's actually his mom. Like, yeah, okay. And there's a scene early on when he arrives at the manor where she approaches him and like puts her hand on his on his face and like comforts him like trying to encourage him so yeah so here's another question for you then you just kind of alluded to that being a bit of an illusion do you believe then that that green sash is not real like do you think that that actually has the powers that Gowan believes it has if he leaves the sash on he'll he'll survive being beheaded i think the one from his mom probably did because yep. it's established in this movie that magic is a real actual thing much like it is in arthurian legend um, I don't know if the sash, maybe the sash he, he received from the lady is magical as well. It very well could be. Um, it's kind of moot because we get to the end of the film and it, it plays a significant role in the decision Garwin chooses to make when he finally faces off with the yeah. Green Knight. I think it was just a test of, of just his his virtue and his and his metal. Like if he's given this opportunity to uh, sidestep his his responsibility and his duty yeah. when he goes off and meets the Green Knight, will he accept that or will he actually? you know, accept his, his responsibility and complete the game honorably, chivalrously as a knight. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's kind of, it, you know, his actions in that first scene where he beheads the knight really put him in a lose-lose situation because he goes and he faces the knight. Um, I mean, the knight stops when he flinches, you know, like two, three times Gawain yeah. flinches and, and the knight stops. It's pretty clear to me that if Gawain was to just run at that point, he'd he'd get away. Like, he'd be fine. The knight's not going to chase him down to cut his head off. Like, that's not part of the game. The game is that he meet him at the Green Chapel. But yeah. But then what happens to Gawain's honor? If he doesn't go through with this challenge that he has accepted and, and accepted quite forcefully by chopping off the guy's head, <laughs> then, you know, there goes his chivalry and his honor and stuff anyway. So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting end to it. <laughs> Yeah, and we get to see the results of that. We get to see a montage of what would have happened if Gawain had yeah. like refused his his part in the game if he had just chosen to run away like a coward. Uh he goes back and he lies and he tells everybody, Yeah, I went through with it, I'm a hero, I you know, met yeah. the Green Knight, everything worked out great. He goes on to be king, but he's still chasing those those false ideals of chivalry and those false idols of honor. Like yep. he goes to war, he himself does not fight in the war. That results in his son fighting in the war. He loses his son. Yeah. Um, symbolism like that, where he goes back and he has a a child with uh, with Essel, and he takes the child because he's a king. He needs a child, needs an heir. Leaves Essel behind. Like he doesn't do anything yeah. honorably. He just yeah. It's all about I'm a man. I'm a king. I gotta have a child. I gotta go to war. Blah blah blah. But there's no actual concept of of chivalry in his heart or in his mind. Yeah. And luckily, we learned that that was all just a montage to allude to what would happen if he didn't accept the challenge. He yeah, does. It's a great sequence. Like, it's it's actually quite long. It's I think from memory, it runs about 15 or 20 minutes. And from yeah. memory, there's zero dialogue the entire sequence. It's mm -hmm. it's just score, which, by the way, the score in this film is stunning. Oof, it really is. Yeah. But it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful sequence. And because it does run so long, there's a little bit of you that almost wonders, oh, okay, is this- is this how it's going to end then? Is this is this what we're really seeing? Mm -hmm. Do you believe that the sequence is- Do you think it's kind of omniscious? Like, do you think that this is 
Gawain's vision of the future? Or do you think that this is something that we're seeing as a vision of the true future if he doesn't? I think it's both, if if that's a fair answer. Yeah. I think it's very much for our own, our own benefit to, to see what would happen if, if Gawain didn't properly go through the steps he was supposed to to become a man. And I also think it's 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 Gawain coming to a realization that he's got to make this choice. And whether or not he dies, he needs to become a man right now because that's how his life is going to play out if it doesn't. Like, it's going to be hollow and empty and horrible and miserable and he'll eventually die with shame and dishonor anyway. Yeah. So. All right. Let me ask you one more question then. And I'm pretty sure that I'll know your answer to this. We get a little bit of a Sopranos ending here and it kind of cuts before any beheading oh. actually takes place. Yeah. Do you believe that that he is beheaded in the end? Like if, if the Green Knight really is summoned kind of by his mother as almost a challenge to to test his mettle and, and teach him how to be a man and a knight and to be chivalrous and good, do you believe he does get beheaded? I mean, do you think that he's at the point now where, uh, like- Let's face it, if the Green Knight now decides not to behead him, does he really learn anything anyway? <laughs> like, I-, I- I think he does learn something. And I think that's why he stops the Green Knight and removes the sash before accepting his fate. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why he, why the Green Knight was was theoretically testing him as the Lord as well. Yeah. Uh, the point of the challenge, I don't think, was actually for the Green Knight to be like a, a malicious figure who just wanted to kill this dude. Like, that's our game. Haha, ha, now you got to die. Yeah. I think, I think the game was- was testing Garwin's metal, like yeah. seeing if he's actually worthy of, of becoming a man. And I think, I, I almost think that that the process that Garwin went through to become a man and get to this point to accept his fate yeah. was almost more harsh and painful than the actual beheading. Yeah. So no, I, th- I think the Green Knight lets him go in the end. I think that was you the think whole he point. Gets, it wasn't, okay. yeah, yeah I think he lives and, and li- yeah, I think he gets to, to move on and continue yeah. on with his life. I'm, yeah. I'm still not, I, I guess I don't really know. David Larry has come out and said that the original cut did have the beheading in it. Really? Um, yes. And I have to think that there's obviously a reason why that was written in the script, but then there's also got to be a reason why in re-editing he decided to remove that. So, I like the fact that it is completely open. Um, sure. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I honestly, I still think about it. <laughs> I don't know whether he gets away or whether he gets beheaded. Yeah. Um, and it's, but as it's you said, ending. I think yeah. really it's about his journey really is the, is the point of the film. It's about, yeah. yes, did he learn anything along the way? How did he learn it? I, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I can definitely see the merit in why David Lowry originally kept the beheading in, just because it would be such an a, like a studio A twenty four ending. <laughs> yeah, for it to be like ridiculously like bittersweet and like good yeah. and bad. That like yeah, he became a man, but yeah, he's also dead as a result. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I mean I choose to believe that just based on on um, uh, Ralph Innocent's performance in that scene, it's very, yeah. it's 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 gentle, it's kind, yes. it's warm. It's he comes down to his level. And he's like. Well done, Sir Knight. And he's like, now off with your head. And he like very gently like just kind of brings his yeah, finger across. It's almost his neck. playful the way he says it's that final line. Very yep. playful. And I, I can't see that scene continuing on with him be like, okay, now I'm actually gonna kill it. Like, <laughs> no, it's <laughs> yeah. just it's too cruel for for a story that's relatively cruel and painful for, for Gawain up to that point. Yeah. So I choose to believe that Gawain survived. But yeah. I, I also like the ambiguity. It's very well. Done. I like your optimism. I'd like to buy into that and say I think he survives as well. I, I, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> 
So, all right. I think we've reached the end here then. How are you scoring this? What's your score out of 10? I'm going to give it a solid 8.5, maybe a 9. Yep. That's yeah, a high it's score. up there for yep. me. It's up there for me. It's every aspect of the film is is so well done. And it's one of those films where everything could have gone terribly wrong and I think everything just went perfectly right. It's it's masterful. Yep. No, definitely agree. I'm also a 9. I think I, I actually I said this last week when I spoke about um Pig. Did you see Pig with Nicolas Cage? I have not. It's on my queue. Right. Yeah. Loved that film. Just last week I said that that was my top of the year. This nice. has now taken over that. <laughs> um Really? Right on. Excellent film. Just really tightly crafted the themes as i said are so relatable even though you know i'm not a knight <laughs> i live in i live in a very <laughs> nice house i've got television i'm not waking up in brothels every day but i think those <laughs> themes of you know what does it take to be to be good and i i just think it's very um relatable to just about everybody because everybody oh, yeah. always wants to be a better person um, you know, and some of us are doing better than Gawain on that journey. Some of us are doing worse. But I think in the back of our head, we're still always thinking, can I be better? Should I be better? So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Beautiful, beautiful film. Well, thank you so much for joining me, DT. This has been an awesome, awesome chat. I'd love to have you Dude, back. Can you tell everybody you. where they can find you and your wonderful show? Yeah, uh, it's me and uh, two of my best friends. We do a show called Space Castle. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Space Castle Pod. Um, you can find us on literally every every platform. We're on Google. We're on Good Pods. Uh, we just got approved by Amazon, and oh, uh, nice. yeah, yeah, which is really cool. Um, but literally everywhere. So yeah, please check us out. We'd really appreciate it. Nice. Well, I mean, if you can find this show, you can find that. Just whatever app you're in, type in Space <laughs> Castle instead of We Watch a Thing, and, and and they'll be there. So no, watch your show or recommend. listen to your show first, and then, and then <laughs> our show after. Yeah. But th- <laughs> thank you again. This has been absolutely wonderful next week i'll be joined by the wonderful julio from the contrarians podcast and we're going to be talking about the life aquatic with steve sizu which i've never seen but it's a favorite of julio's have you seen that one dt you a wes anderson fan i love wes anderson and the life aquatic is actually my favorite wes anderson movie so you are in for a treat bill murray just slays in it it's awesome Nice. Looking forward to that one. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do that at wewatchedathing.com or wewatchedathing at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at wewatchedathing. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wewatchedathing. And I'll catch you next week. (laughs) 